The scripture reading for this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, last week we considered uh, Paul's, uh, the beginning, we beginning, began to consider Paul's final proof in Galatians 3 that the law of Moses, given 430 years after Abraham's offspring had entered Egypt, did not in any way annul the promise that God made to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was bound by covenant, a covenant that could not be altered. And so the law, even though given to Abraham's offspring through Moses on Mount Sinai, didn't add anything to the promise of grace given to Abraham so many years before. Now, Paul knew that that was going to raise questions in the minds of his readers, particularly the one that we began the passage with this morning. Why then the law? If the law didn't add anything to the promise, then what was its point? And that was not a uh, you know, purely theoretical question for the church in Galatia to whom Paul was writing. And it shouldn't be a purely theoretical question for us either. For them, for his original readers, the issue had to do with what false teachers were telling them, that they had to keep the law in order to inherit the promise. They had to keep the law in order to be saved. And things can be the same for us today as well. Listen, you will never hear me say that you have to keep God's law in order to be saved. Can I say that again? You will never hear me say that you have to keep God's law in order to be saved. Obedience to God is the fruit, not the root of your salvation. Faith in Christ is the root. To change the metaphor just a bit, Christ is the vine, we are the branches, the fruit comes from Him. And that fruit includes obedience. 
Many of us have had pastors, many of them well-meaning, tell us that we must keep a law in order to be saved, whether that's God's law, the Ten Commandments, or whether it's some law that characterized, you know, their particular interest or the community of which they were a part. You know, you must dress a certain way, uh, you must never, you know, drink alcohol, you, you must homeschool or Christian school your kids, all these things you must do in order to show that you are truly saved. But we don't need pastors to persuade us that salvation can be achieved through law-keeping. Our own hearts trend in that direction as well. We want to produce fruit, not bear it, because we want to take credit before God, and we, and we want to show off before other people. Look at this great life that I have built for myself, this life of moral near perfection, but good enough for God to let me in. The fruit that we'll see from our passage this morning, and as we consider Scripture more broadly, is a life of glad submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The fruit that God wants to see born in our lives is the fruit of a life of glad submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which is at the very heart of what it means to be a person liberated from bondage to sin. We, we tend to think of Christian liberty, of freedom in Christ, as freedom to do whatever we want. Freedom is liberation from sin's bondage over us so that we are now freed up to walk in the way that God has set out for us, to live according to his law, not as a means of our salvation, but as a path that God has given us, the path that truly brings life. I, I hope that if you, if you come away from this passage and our study of it this morning with anything, you'll come away with this understanding that God's law is meant for our good. Not a means by which we are saved, but a path that we follow in order to live a life of glad submission to His Lordship, which is, in fact, the best possible life. There is no law that will liberate us to live that kind of life. Quite to the contrary, Paul tells us that the law of God imprisons us. The law does, however, have a role to play in our glad submission to the Lordship of Christ. The law has a role to play in our experience of what it means to be a person liberated from the bondage of sin. The law has a role to play in what it means to be a whole person created in the image of God. And the law has a role to play in what it means to live as His people in the world. That's why the author of Psalm 119 can say, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And then go on to say that God's law is a delight in verses 70 and 92 of Psalm 119. That God's law is a source of comfort in verse 52, an object of love in verse 97, a means of peace in verse 165, and of greater worth than silver and gold in verse 72. In Psalm 19, David says God's law is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey from the comb. Now, how does that 
comport with what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3. This is all God's word after all. To use a baseball analogy, because we all know that pitchers and catchers report in one month, right? We're all aware of that. Thank you. Yeah. The question is this, has God put himself in a pickle? If you're a baseball fan, you know what a pickle is. Is, Has God put himself in a pickle? Is he caught between law and grace the way a base runner can get caught between second and third? How can the law be both praiseworthy, as the psalmist says, but also like a prison warden the way that Paul says at the same time? And it all boils down to how we use the law. Paul tells us in this passage how not to use the law, and he hints at ways to use it rightly. So there's three things that we're going to look at this morning. First, how the law reveals our need for grace. How the law reveals our need for grace. And then second, how the law directs the life of grace how the law directs the life of grace, and then third, the union that faith alone secures. The union that faith, not law, secures. Before we jump in, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, how the law reveals our need for grace. But before we jump into the why question that Paul asks, let's first ask the what question. What is Paul referring to when he speaks of the law in this passage? And if you look at verse 19, I'm going to read it again. Verse 19, Paul says this, uh, the law was added... It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Paul's referring to the law given on Mount Sinai. If you read Exodus and the giving of the law, beginning in Exodus chapter 20, you'll see that angels attended God's giving of the law to Moses. Moses was the intermediary in that sense. The the law was given by God to Moses to take to the people. And then when you get to the end of verse 20, and this idea that God, uh, the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, that's hinting at something that the author of Hebrews will say later in Hebrews chapter 6, 13, and 14, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. There was no intermediary between God and Abraham. God, as it were, swore by himself. This is my promise to you. Now again, you read about the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20, verses uh, chapter 20 through 24, the chapters, and then in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are restated uh, for, the, uh, for the children of the Exodus generation as they are about to enter the promised land. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, you read the Ten Commandments. And then beginning in Exodus chapter 21, you read a whole lot of other laws. How do these things go together? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, where you see the Ten Commandments stated and then restated. If you look at those Ten Commandments, those ten words, what you find there are laws that can be considered apodictic injunctions. Big fancy word. 
It simply means this. These are unconditional assertions of right and wrong. Unconditional assertions of right and wrong. They're given in the context of a commandment. And here's the key, without qualification and not tied to any specific context. All right? The Ten Commandments are universal. When you jump into chapters 21 through 24 of Exodus, you begin to see ways in which this universal, eternal, once and for all, for all people, law, is to be applied within the nation of Israel in their particular context. And so you move from these universal laws to the application of those laws for Israel in their time and place. And so you see there not only God's moral law, revealed in the Ten Commandments, but also the way in which that moral law was to be applied in their civil and their ceremonial life. Their civil life, how they govern themselves as a nation in a particular place, and their ceremonial life, what the laws were for them to engage in a relationship with God through priests and sacrifices. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, and the New Testament makes clear that the the, the, the ceremonial laws, the laws having to do with cleanliness and what kind of foods were clean and unclean are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the one who declared all food clean. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus is the final and ultimate priest. All these are teachings of the New Testament. The, the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. The civil law no longer applies. The, the church is not a geopolitical entity limited by boundaries in a nation on the earth. The church is global. The church is universal. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth to rescue people as they are, not bring them into a place in which they have to live. The civil law the ways in which Israel was to govern itself, those laws are set aside now with the new age and the new covenant. However, God's moral law remains. Those Ten Commandments, the law of God that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 was actually written on our heart at creation is codified in the Ten Commandments. We have there the law of God for everyone, in every place, at every time. And so the question we're wrestling with as we think about God's law is what God's moral law. In particular, the Ten Commandments. What do we do with the Ten Commandments? What role do the Ten Commandments have in our life today? So back to Paul now in the question of why the law. And he answers that question in the text. Let's take a look at verse 19. Verse 19 again, why then the law? He says it was added because of transgressions. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says pretty much the same thing. He says there, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So because of transgressions means that the law was given so that we could see our sin and our need for a Savior. In verse 22, the first part of verse 22 we read this, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The uh, actor and comedian W.C. Fields lived a, a wild and reckless life. And, and near the end of it, he was seen reading a Bible. When asked why, he said, I'm looking for loopholes. What Paul says here in verse 22 is there's no loopholes. Scripture imprisons everything under sin. There's no escaping Scripture's verdict that all alike are under sin. 
Verse 23, verse 23 says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. That word for being held captive has to do with uh, like a, a prison guard or like soldiers that are guarding the walls of a city or the gate of a city so that not only can no one come in, but no one can go out. Or in Luke chapter 5, there's this uh, picture where the, the feeding of the, or the, the miraculous catch of fish, where the fish were scooped up in a net. And that word for scooped up is the idea of, of being held captive, of being bound up or, or hemmed in or cooped up. Paul says in verse 24 that the law was our guardian. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ Came That idea of guardian is the idea of a, of a tutor. In Greco-Roman society, those who were more wealthy had a tutor, likely a, a slave, who would watch over um, their children. And that person was often very cruel. The, the early images of the pedagogos, the slave, the, the, the tutor over the child, actually there's, there's depictions of him holding a, a staff or holding a rod. <laughs> I'm not going to make any analogies to Catholic school or anything. Anyway. <laughs> so, so what do we learn? What do we learn about the law from this passage, from Galatians chapter 3? Well, look at verse 21 again with me. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What do we learn about it? If, if the law was given to replace the promise, we'd be lost. We'd be lost. The good news of Galatians 3 is that it was never meant to. Instead, the law of God was meant to drive us to our knees, to point us to the promise, to cause us to cry out for Christ. That's what Paul is emphasizing in this passage, in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, not to those who work for their salvation, but those who believe. I love this quote from John Stott in his commentary on this passage. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. The law reveals our need for grace. But here's the second point. The law also directs the life of grace. The law directs the life of grace. Now, I want you to look at verse 21 again. First, first part of verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? I want to explore for a moment the non-contrariness of the law and the promises, the way in which the law of God and the promises of God, the law of God and the grace of God are indeed compatible. First, I want you to think about Paul's dynamic in Romans chapter 7 and 8. If you were to go later today and read Romans chapter 7 through 8, uh, you will see there Paul the Christian, 
Paul the believer, saying, the, first of all, the law is not sin, just like he says here, but it shows sin to be sin. By the law, Paul knows himself to be a sinner. He can say on the one hand, something that no non-Christian could ever say, that he delights in the law of God. But there is this war that wages within him because of his sin, such that he does what the law forbids and fails to do what the law requires. Not because of any failure in God's law, but because of his own sin. That drives Paul at the end of Romans chapter 7 to cry out to God, who will rescue me from this bondage of death? There's Stott's point that the law must drive us to that place. And then where does Paul land at the very end of chapter 7 and leading into Romans chapter 8 verse 1? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is because of Paul being confronted by the law of God as a Christian that he recognizes on the one hand that Christ is his deliverer and there is no longer any condemnation for him, even though he does the very thing that he does not want to do and fails to do the very thing that he does want to do, glorify God by walking in line with his law. The same law that reveals sin to be sin when you first become a Christian continues to reveal sin to be sin as a Christian, that we might walk in repentance and faith. The law in the life of the Christian is meant to bring conviction, We are so easily uh, able to convince ourselves that we're pretty good. (laughs) The law levels every one of us. Levels every one of us. So that we will cry out to Jesus Christ for mercy. So that's, that's the law and ongoing repentance in the life of a Christian. But let's come back to this idea of the life of grace. A life gladly lived in submission to the Lordship of Christ. What does the law have to do with that? And this is why it's so important to remember that the Bible's one story. From beginning to end, God is doing one thing. He's rescuing a people for himself from sin through his Redeemer, his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to make a book recommendation here. I love making book recommendations, and you know, this is one I hope you all read. I say that about every book, but I mean it. From my heart, hope you read this one. Far as the curse is found, the covenant story of redemption by Michael Williams. Mike Mike Williams was one of my professors at Covenant Seminary. Title of the book again, Far as the curse is found, the covenant story of redemption by Michael D. Williams. Williams points this out. He says that the law was never intended to be a means of earning salvation. Rather, God gave it to guide Israel in living in a way that would please their Redeemer. Far from setting aside the promise of grace, the law was given to those who had been saved by grace in order to show them how to live in that grace. Now you say, wait a minute. What do you mean that the people of Israel were saved by grace? Remember the way the Ten Commandments begins. The Ten Commandments do not begin with, you shall have no other God before me. That's the first commandment, but the prologue reads different. 
The prologue is this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Grace. You shall have no other gods before me. Law. Grace precedes law. Old Testament, New Testament. Mosaic covenant. The the Mount Sinai. Grace precedes law. God heard his people's cry from Egypt. He remembered his promise to Abraham and he delivered. The Bible's still one story. The same approach applies today. God's moral law is still binding. We we would never say, oh man, you're a Christian now. Have as many gods as you want. Sleep with as many people as you want. Kill anybody you want. Steal anything you want. No. (laughs) At the same time, we're not saved by keeping God's law. Neither was Israel. Israel was saved because God rescued them. We're saved because God rescued us. Their slavery was in Egypt. Our slavery is to sin. It's rescue through a redeemer, nonetheless. Jesus summarized the law as a law of love. He said, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength was given to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 6. One story. One response of love, following the law of God given for our good, not in order to establish a relationship with God. Please hear that. The law, <clears throat> the law does not establish a relationship with God. Grace establishes a relationship with God. The law is the way that we live as those who have been redeemed in the way that this good and gracious Father has given us to live. Let's turn back to the text in, um, in Galatians and, and let's take a look at the end of the passage down in verse 26 and 29 and consider the union that faith, not law, secures, that makes this life of grace possible because law does not make the life of grace possible. Law directs the life of grace. Faith, specifically, Union with Christ empowers the life of grace. So take a look with me, verses 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That is union with Christ language. It's not the first time that Paul's touched on union with Christ in Galatians. But that is the source. That is the, the, the spoke of the wheel through which every aspect of our salvation finds its, um, its life. It's, it's union with Christ. And we don't get into Christ through works. We get into Christ through faith. That faith is a gift itself of God's grace. We're saved by faith through grace, not works. This picture of being united to Christ results in our all being sons of God. And then this great picture of the community of God's people where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All those things that in ancient society would be distinctions that would cause separation are still things that distinguish us from one another, but now in Christ there's a unity. There's a great unity and diversity that gives glory to God. That's something that only 
Christ accomplishes. Now, next week, there'll be more on the idea of what it means to be adopted into God's family, to have God as our father, but just remember this. In the same way that a good father or a good mother does not, on the one hand, give a harsh law to their children and say, obey it or I'll crush you and abandon you and, and, and no longer be your parent. Nor does a, does a, a mother or a father you know, that's good be capricious in any way. You never know where you stand with them. Are they going to come down or, or, or not? Nor would a good father and mother say, you know what, live however you want. It doesn't matter. A good father, a good mother, out of love for their child and a desire that their life go well for them, creates rules that they might live by them. Not live in the sense of gain life. They have life entirely by the gracious initiative of mom and dad, but that they might live the life that is good, the life that is pleasing to them as parents, the life that will ultimately bring them their greatest joy in the world, they provide rules. And God is a good father. There's no better father than this God. And out of love for us, out of a desire that it go well for us, out of a desire that we live a life that is pleasing to him, make his father heart glad, because it makes our hearts glad when our parents are pleased with us. So too, God's Father heart, He gives us a law that we might walk in it out of love for Him. The law of God is like nuclear fission. It is. Nuclear fission used rightly can power a city. Used wrongly, it'll level one. The law won't power your life. The law won't power a church. Only the Spirit of God can do that. But the law, used rightly, will direct a person and a church in the life of grace. Used wrongly, it will devastate a church and decimate the heart of faith. The law reveals our need for grace. The law directs the life of grace But the desire and the power for the life of grace, a life lived in glad submission to the Lordship of Christ, a life that radiates His beauty in the world, that life flows from our union with Christ through faith, union with the living Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us see that that your law is good. It was never meant to be a means by which people are saved. But it is provided as the way that if followed by those who have been redeemed by you and empowered by your spirit would live, we would indeed live a life that is pleasing to you, pleasing to us, more fully human than any other way of living, in a way that actually gives a testimony to the world of what it means to be a creature walking before a creator of what it means to be a child living before a father. Thank you, O God, for your grace. We pray that you would help us to walk in it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.